0: Chasing Lights. What is spring like in Alaska? Someone asked me that question one spring in a letter long after I had moved away to Chicago. I was grateful to answer it as it briefly lifted me out of a dark time. The winters were nowhere near as long or cold where I lived but recent news made it difficult for me to see much light really at all. I felt hopeless. But that question in a letter brought in a little light I sat down to write an answer as best I could. Now the tricky part of the answer is this. Spring doesn't really happen in Alaska. Instead of cherry blossoms, crocus and narcissus, instead of Easter egg hunts in the grass and basking in the warm new sun, April and May are really about melting. There are occasional snowfalls, even blizzards, but mostly it's a time for melting, but it takes a while, as layers of snow built up over six or seven months were compacted into ice. The top layer is usually dark black from the soot and dirt kicked up by the cars, while inside every snowbank, the layers of snow are separated by the dirt, dog poop, garbage, and tree branches that fell over a long winter. It is a black layer cake slowly melting into a dark sludge. It stinks. Cold can keep more obnoxious smells to a minimum, another benefit to sub-zero temperatures. But as the temperatures rise, so too does the aroma. A lot of what people like about Alaska is breathing in the clean air. And in April and May, it's not quite that wonderful. Now, compared to the smell of Alaskan spring, the garbage smells of New York City might not seem so bad. It just isn't spring. Everyone in Alaska calls it breakup. With winter over, it's no longer a pristine fairy tale landscape of white snow, no longer a time of smooth skiing and crisp, clear air. It's time to break up. The snow is black and broken, and it will take a while to go away. It's uncomfortable. It's ugly. But life on the other side will be better, even if it doesn't seem possible at that very moment. We will all be different people when we get to the other side. It's called breakup mostly because of the rivers. You know, many frozen rivers are used as roads, allowing trucks to get deep into the interior every winter. Now, at some point, the ice will no longer support them, and not long after that, the ice will break up and begin to flow downstream again. Now, everyone wanted to know when that would happen. Therefore, in 1917, a group of railroad engineers bet a total of $800 on a lottery to determine the exact month, day, hour, and minute the ice would break up. In October, every year, a tripod is set up on the frozen Nenana River near Denali with a string connected to a clock on the shore. Everyone in the state started to bet on break-up every year, and newspaper reports excitedly discussed the ice conditions, the odds, the history, and ultimately profiled the winter. The date vacillated every year between late April and early May. Now, my first breakup happened on May 8th, and last year's was April 27th. More dates are in April than there used to be, but most people expect that now. Breakup is destructive. Any building near a frozen lake or river could disappear in the ice forever, or at least be shattered to timber. Roads break up too, and frost heaves create three to four foot wide bumps in the asphalt that rise from six to 12 inches above the surface. Now once while bicycling with my father on a bike path towards his office, he went over his handlebars when he was surprised by one of those heaves. I then smashed into him, unable to slow down in time. My father was in agony, his pelvis bone cracked, but amazingly, he got back onto his bike so we could go home. He ended up in bed for a week. I was okay, but for the first time in my life, had the wind knocked out of me. I couldn't breathe for a moment, and even though I started to breathe again eventually, it really shook me. I don't think I noticed my breath until it wasn't there. Every street and many front yards were flooded as the melted ice had nowhere to go. It it just stood there on top of the frozen ground. My brother, sister, and I were all provisioned with high rubber boots, essential gear for a walk to and from school, where there was ice on the sidewalk, we rushed to step on it so that we could watch it crack or shatter underfoot. The entire trip home to us was about cracking ice. Maybe we felt that it was our duty to help break up happen faster. Without us, who knows how long it would have taken. A block or so from our house, there were four vacant lots that formed a gravel park between streets. In the fall, The entire area had been leveled and dug down three or four feet below the sidewalk in anticipation of a new construction in the spring. No one noticed that it was essentially a square bowl until the snow melted. At that point, it became a lake. Water filled all four lots right up to the sidewalks. The water, like all the other snow melt, was dark and a toxic brew of garbage, building materials, and whatever else happened to be on the snow. As the temperatures bounced up and down even after the melt, It would often have flows of ice on it, especially near the edges where we would break ice, then wade in with our high boots. My brother and I went in together, and my boots were maybe a half inch higher than his, which allowed me to go just a little bit further. He, however, got pretty close as he was willing to let the water rise to the very lip of his boots. We stood there laughing as we felt the weight of the water pressed against our feet and legs. One false move and the murky water poured in, which happened at least once. It it really was a miracle that none of us became sick, but I suspect it was because uh, it was just too cold for microbes to grow that quickly. Now, when we looked up, we could see an older boy in an inflatable boat paddling around the lake. All of us who were younger looked on him with envy. How cool to be floating above a vacant lot. How lucky we all were to have our very own lake nearby, at least for that year. New houses were built a year later. When I wrote the letter to my friend, I was overwhelmed by the memories of my first breakup, but also of something else. A little while earlier, on March 24th of 1989, an oil tanker called the Exxon Valdez ran aground on Bly Reef in Prince William Sound. Over the next few days, it spilled 10.8 million gallons of crude oil into the ocean. As a result, 1,300 miles of coastline were inundated with oil. Now, to give you a sense of scale, how big that is, consider that the entire east coast of the United States is only a little more at 2,165 miles long. I first learned about the spill As I was walking to work in Chicago on a gray March day, a headline in a newsstand screamed about the worst oil spill in history. I lost my breath. How could that be? In the days that followed, there were all sorts of stories about the spill, about the negligence of the ship captain, about the lack of preparation for a spill, and about the attempt to rescue wildlife. It is very difficult to get to where the spill happened. It could only be accessed by ship or by air. Prince William Sound is 10,000 square miles. It's surrounded by 150 glaciers, and it's about 100 miles across. There are no interstate highways there. Somehow, cleanup efforts were initiated, but only 10% of the oil was ever recovered. The rest is still on the beaches, under rocks, or on the seabed. In the first year, between 100,000 and 250,000 seabirds, approximately 2,800 sea otters, 300 harbor seals, 247 bald eagles, and 22 orcas were killed. On the news, there were pictures of people spraying oil-soaked beaches with pressurized hot water as if they were rinsing off their driveways. Other pictures were of those trying to save birds with soap and brushes. But after all that, decades later, the oil is still there. Some estimates at the time suggested that it will be more than a 100 years before it's all gone. Beaches in the wild that smell like a gas station. For years in school, we were shown documentary films generously provided by the Exxon Corporation that described how they were ready to protect our pristine wilderness. Double hulled tankers ensured that even if there was an accident, there would be no spill. The Exxon Valdez is a single hulled tanker. Now, I use the present tense here because the ship was repaired and put back into service, but now hauling ore instead of oil. We also saw wonderful footage in those documentaries of their floating boom system that would allow them to contain any oil spill. Most of the booms were no longer in service when the spill occurred. Of course, I knew that oil companies weren't the most ethical groups in the world, so does everyone, but somehow, I allowed myself to believe it would be okay. The awful things that oil companies had done in the past were in the past, right? And of course, I was happy to accept inexpensive student loans and even checks at the end of the year from the Alaska Permanent Fund, just like every other resident. The fund was established from oil revenue given to the state in exchange for the right to extract oil. We were lied to and we were paid for. In the spring of 1989, it wasn't just spring, that was gray. So was my heart. Everything I did became difficult. Whether I was at work or spending time with friends, it was exhausting just to pay attention. Laughing, though I I did laugh, hurt the moment the laughter stopped. The world was covered in oil. How could I laugh? I had a dream Where I was underwater, coasting through the currents and effortlessly breathing, I could see sunlight streaming down from above. There were whales not far from me, and the sunlight left dappled patterns on their skin. And then, slowly, I could see a very thin black line coming down from the surface towards me. I reached out to touch it. Sticky. Cold and fast, it poured all over my hand and up my arm. There were so many other lines descending, like an upside-down forest. Oil covered my body in thick, black muck. It looked like a shiny scuba suit. And then a black line fell on my head, covering me completely. My mouth, ears and eyes, stopped up with black as I fell to the bottom of the ocean. It took more than a year to get rid of the black in me. I'm still coming to terms with that spill. It wasn't just the incredible destruction of a fragile ecosystem. Oil companies, developers, and manufacturers have been doing the same thing for centuries. It was the realization that it wasn't Others that did this. It was me. I'm a partner, complete with dividend checks in the mail. Plus, there's fuel in my car, plane tickets to everywhere, natural gas to cook dinner and heat my home, and the plastic that holds my soap or packages the toilet paper rolls in a store. I use all of it. My life is better for it. So how can I manage the responsibility of every step I take, and the discomfort of this knowledge. The answer for most people, myself included, is to look away. When the disasters happen, and they do so like clockwork, I'm concerned. I get mad at the fall guy. I cry or yell and then go on like nothing happened. I tried to keep looking away and managed to do so for a long time. But the lines of black oil keep falling on me. I'm not very good at looking away anymore. Prince William Sound is remote, even though it's on the backside of the Kenai Peninsula near Anchorage. Running down the center of that peninsula are spectacular mountains and glaciers that make most roads impossible to build. However, there is one way to get there over land, through a mountain. The Portage Tunnel travels 12 miles from the Seward Highway through the Portage Glacier. The tunnel was built in 1943. Like many infrastructure projects in Alaska, it was built during World War II. The tunnel ended on the western side of Prince William Sound in a town called Whittier. Now, with a population of around 270 people, it wasn't really a town. It was basically a deep water port with easy access to the road system to Anchorage. The mountains rose directly from the water, leaving very little room for a town to even exist. There were a couple of rough-looking concrete buildings built by the military in the 1940s, but not much else. It is a beautiful, if brief, train ride. Starting in a valley of the Chugach Range, it follows a path that was originally created by the Dana'ina people for fishing, and then it was used by Russian fur traders. And just like most places, the roads always seemed to follow what was there before. In a short time, the train went into a tunnel, and on the other side was an area that looked like it was a greenhouse, with filtered light and bright green vegetation everywhere. I once saw a moose near the tracks looking bored as he chewed something that hung from his mouth. We then went back into darkness before emerging at the harbor. My strongest impression of Prince William Sound is that it looks a lot better than any nature documentary could hope to appear. Walking to the docks, eagles seem as common as seagulls. Otters dive and twirl on the surface, while clouds caught on mountain peaks spray their rain on plump evergreens above. The water goes out to the horizon, deep, dark, quiet. This is beyond the capacity of even the best IMAX film camera to somehow capture. Hollywood actually found a bit of Whittier after I left home. Filmed in 1985, Runaway Train was a movie based on an Akira Kurosawa screenplay that starred John Voight, Eric Roberts, and Rebecca de Mornay. The film was about two convicts trying to escape from a high-security prison in the middle of a blizzard on a runaway train. So basically the title pretty much says everything you need to know about the movie. Mr. Voight and Mr. Roberts were very believable as tough guys in an extreme environment. However, as they climbed hand over hand without gloves on, on their hands outside of the train going 60 miles per hour in the middle of a blizzard, I became very aware that these tough guys We're actually actors from Southern California. Any Alaskan knows that if you touch metal when it's that cold, your hand will stick. And the skin will stay there when you pull your hand away too quickly. It doesn't matter how tough someone is, they won't touch sub-zero metal more than once. Still, it was fun to see the cute little train to Whittier star in an action movie. Now, on the other side of the Kenai Peninsula, it's possible to drive to little towns like Saldatna, Seward and Homer. On a little holiday, we drove to Homer once to take a boat to Halibut Cove in Ketchamek Bay around the tip of the peninsula. We stayed in a rented cabin opening to a field that ended in a bluff overlooking the ocean. I remember fishing on the beach. Now my brother and I hated beach fishing, but we were continuously told to do it. Standing on a beach and casting a lure out into the waves Seemed pointless. In all the times we had done it before, we had never caught anything. But we loved fishing, and it seemed to be our, our responsibility to do the beach fishing thing. So my brother and I were somewhat quiet as we cast out into the waves that day. We got bored with the repetition, but kept at it. Why can't we go out on a boat? That's where the action is. If we were on a boat, I'm pretty sure that we would have a fish by now. And then at some point, I saw it. There was a fish. Silver and fast. I could just make it out under the water. My brother saw it, too. And then we saw it again. And and then I realized that one of us had the fish on our line. Now, I didn't feel any more than the usual tension on the rod, so I assumed it was my brother's. And I said, you've got him. And he said, no, 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 I don't. You do. And he was right. I started to feel more tension as I tried to reel him in. Wow. Fish. Even in that moment, I realized that I wouldn't have any excuse in the future not to fish on the beach. That was not great, but I did have a fish now. And excited, I reeled him in. Now, since we always fished with my dad around, we had no idea what to do with it. So, picking up the fish with the hook still in his mouth, I carried it and the rod all the way back to the cabin. I was probably yelling like a fool about catching a fish. My brother and I got to the cabin with all the grown-ups there. They were excited and laughed as we got the fish off the hook and ready for cleaning. And my father told me that at that point, no one else had caught anything that this was the first fish of the season. I remember how fresh everything smelled there. The air from the ocean danced with the trees and grass and blew in my ears. I had to shout over the wind to be heard, even by myself. There were no planes overhead, no cars anywhere. Occasionally I saw a fishing trawler, but over the wind, it was difficult to hear any motor or smell diesel fumes. But it wasn't just absence that made it special. The sky, the ocean, and the forest were so full of life. There's a hawk! Is that a whale out there? Can you hear the wolves? There was a large group of geese that would hang around the cabin on the great lawn. The geese were terrific fun. They would honk at us, and we would rush at them to see them scatter. I'm not sure why it delighted us so much, but it did, and I'm sure it was very aggravating to the geese. At one point, the whole gaggle was grouped together tightly. I ran at them, yelling and waving my arms. I I knew that they couldn't go far because of the cliff, so I figured they would have to scatter to the sides. I ran at them hard, feeling almost angry, pushing them to scatter. But they went straight to the bluff. And at that point, I became terrified that they would fall over the cliff and get hurt, and in that instant realized how wrong it was for me to run after them. But then they leapt over the edge, into the wind, and took off. Pushed by the ocean wind, they soared without moving their wings, and made a large arc around the whole bay together. They looked calm, like they were just stretching their legs a bit before moving on with their day. I'll never forget what it looked like as dozens and dozens of geese soared up and over as the sun reflected on the whitecaps below. I also haven't forgotten my guilt for bothering those birds in the first place, nor the fear that I could have hurt them. And yet, even so, I was blessed and enlightened by the grace of their flight. My friend asked me what spring was like in Alaska. It's uncomfortable, but summer comes eventually.